So today we're moving into a new section in the book of Ezekiel. So real quick, I did this at the very beginning of the book of Ezekiel, I think. But that was a while ago, February, I think it was. Um, so I want to give you kind of show you the outline of the whole book of Ezekiel, and I want to show you where we're going to be for the next handful of weeks here. So the first section of Ezekiel was chapters 1 through 3. It was the calling of Ezekiel. So if you remember this, he saw the big um, uh, the throne, the vision of the throne. Remember that thing with the weird four faces and all the fire and the, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we saw that, and then God specifically calls Ezekiel. And he says, hey, I need you to be a prophet, and everybody's going to hate you, and your life's going to be weird. And Ezekiel goes, okay. So that's the first three chapters. The next bunch of chapters is what we just worked our way through. That was judgment and kind of the charges against the people of God. And so since chapter 4, so for these 20 chapters, we basically did the same sermon like 100,000 times, which was, here's why you're guilty, here's what I'm going to do about it. Here's why you're guilty, here's what I'm going to do about it. Okay, part three is what we're moving in today. It's so different from that. It's here's why you're guilty and what I'm going to do about it, but to the nations. Okay, so now we're moving away from um, here's why you're guilty to the people of God, to the nations around the people of God. And today, specifically, we're going to talk about Israel's like most immediate neighbors. Um, and I'll show you a map in a second. And then the fourth part is uh, the message of hope. So the end of the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 33, the city of Jerusalem falls. And then what happens at the end of chapter 33 is the whole tone of the book switches from, uh, you know, you're guilty and uh, here's what I'm going to do about it to now, okay, I've done what I was going to do about it. And now it's time for the message of hope. He talks about the Messiah. He talks about a future hope. Like um, uh, he talks about like the eternal hope and that sort of stuff. So today what we're going to read and what we're going to see a lot in the next section. So we're going to be in part three for a couple of weeks here. Um, real quick, I want to give you the outline. Uh, first, we're going to do Israel's neighbors. Next week, we're going to do um, judgment on a city called Tyre, T-Y-R-E, if you've heard of that. And the week after, we're going to do chapter 28 and 32. We're going to kind of break it up and we're going to talk about church and politics because he has some specific things to say about the leaders of those parts. And we're going to do Egypt and then we'll be done, right? So we have, I don't know what that was, four or five uh, teachings through this part where God judges the nations. But what happens in this section is there's a, there's a similar pattern. It goes, uh, because therefore, so because you did this, blah, 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 yada, yada, worship idols, yada, yada. Therefore, I'm going to do this. So this because therefore is a very important pattern. Today, we're going to see it four or five times. I think we'll see the because therefore pattern, and we'll see it more when we move. So just real quick, uh, I didn't actually open the thing, Kayla, today. Did you put this in the... Um, yeah, sweet. So uh, the if you have your phone and you looked at that QR code, this is the map of what we're going to be looking at today. And so God is going to give judgment, and he's going to pronounce judgment on four uh, different nations that all surround uh, the nation of Judah, where Jerusalem is the capital. So first, he's going to start at the top at a little nation called Ammon. Then he's going to move south, and he's going to talk about a nation called Moab, and then Edom. And then he's going to... So those are all in a line on the uh, eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. And then he's going to jump across and he's going to do the Philistines, who are uh, part of a people group that lived on the coast. Okay, so that's the map. If you want to... I'm not going to show the map again. I just want you to see it once. If you want to jump back in, it's in the thing. You know, you can kind of follow along where we're going. All right, so let's start here in Ezekiel 25. Uh, we're going to read just 25 today. Um, so less than a couple of the last few weeks, I feel like we did a few that were like 
600 verses. This one will be a little shorter verses-wise. All right, here we go. Verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, face the Ammonites and prophesy against them. So I just showed you the geography of where this uh, country was. Uh, it's northeast of Israel, and it shared a border. All of these countries share a border with Israel, and this nation, the Ammonites specifically, were constantly fighting the people of God over control of that border. Um, the Ammonites, the history of them is they were a people group that were descendants of uh, Abraham's nephew, Lot. Okay, so I've, I'm going to read you this uh, from the CSB Study Bible. It says this, the Ammonites were known for, and then it gives you a list of what they were known for in the Bible. Idolatry, and then it gives a verse, cruelty, pride, opposition, and opposition to God's people. So the Ammonites were some of the big enemies in the book of Judges. As you read the book of Judges, you see the Ammonites keep popping up as the bad guys in that book. Um, they battled with Saul, uh, King Saul, the one before David. They battled with David. They were constant foes of the northern kingdom of Israel before the northern kingdom collapsed. And when the people uh, uh, come back from uh, exile, so, you know, they all go to the exile in Babylon. When the people, the handful of them who do come back, they're trying to rebuild Jerusalem, and they have all this opposition. You read about this in the book of Nehemiah. And some of those guys that were the opposition were these Ammonites. And so these were not great dudes. Jeremiah has a prophecy specifically in uh, chapter 49, the beginning of 49. He has a very similar thing to what we're reading in Ezekiel, which is like this prophecy against the Ammonites. So verse 3, say to the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord God. This is what the Lord God says. So this is, he says, hear the word of the Lord. This is what it says. Now, this is a little weird. Every one of these oracles is specifically told, we're told, comes from the mouth of God himself. But the question is, what's the purpose of these oracles? Like, what was the point? Most likely, the people, the Ammonites, they never heard or read anything that Ezekiel wrote. He was writing in Babylon to, to um, Israelites, right? The Moabites, the Philistines, these guys, they never read this stuff. So what was the point? Well, after the fall of Jerusalem, these guys were, and we'll see this in a second, they were mean to the Israelites. They were terrible. Uh, and uh, these oracles were meant for the Israelites, not for, actually, for the Ammonites. They probably never read this stuff. Um, it was meant as like a, all these oracles in this whole section, the whole part uh, that we're going to read here, um, these were comfort to the Israelites. God saying, look, I know what those people did to you. I know what they were saying. I know how they acted. But don't worry about it because it's my job to worry about it. And to make you, to prove to you that it's my job to worry about it, here's these oracles about what I'm going to do about these things. So what did they do? What's the first because. Remember, it's because you did this, therefore I'm going to do this. So the first because says, because you said, aha, about my sanctuary when it was desecrated, about the land of Israel when it was laid waste, and about the house of Judah when they went into exile. So this is what they did. They gloated when the temple was destroyed. So we live in kind of a pluralistic society, and what that theoretically means is um, that we live in a society where people are free uh, to worship just however they want without fear, uh, you know, without fear of persecution. You don't have to be afraid. Um, and so our church is here on Union Street. There's Buddhist temples a few blocks away. The Catholic Church is right over there, Universalist Church up the hill. And we mostly leave each other alone. You know, I mean, we're, I don't know. Uh, don't read too much into that. But we mostly kind of leave each other alone, and that's kind of the idea. In the ancient world, though, they were a lot more competitive with their gods. And their gods were also tied to national identity. 
And so for years what happened was the people of Israel, they worshipped Yahweh and they annoyed the Ammonites. And then when the temple was destroyed, the Ammonites, they gloated. Ha ha. Not, you know, your God is not the real God. They believed that when countries went to war, what was really happening was there was a war in the heavens and the gods were fighting. Right? And so if Jerusalem fell, it was because Yahweh wasn't a real God. And so what do they do? They completely gloat like a bunch of idiots. It's like when the Dodgers lose a World Series and I'm as happy as when the Giants win one. Right? And I'm like, oh, thank goodness, you know? Uh, they gloated over the destruction of the temple. They gloated over the destruction of their enemies. And we'll read this later. Um, we'll read about it later. But yeah, the temple was completely and utterly destroyed. The city of Jerusalem was burned to the ground. The walls were broken down. Basically, nothing was left of the city of Jerusalem. And so it says they gloated also when the land was laid waste. So laying waste to the land, you guys know what this is? This is like not just you're going to go through and you're going to destroy buildings, but you're going to salt the earth so that nothing can grow there. You're going to kill all the cattle, cut down trees. You're basically going to make it really hard for this place to ever be useful again. And then it says they gloated also the third thing. So they gloated when the temple was destroyed, when the land was laid waste, and when the people were taken into exile. Right As caravans of Israelites were being taken out of the city of Jerusalem and maybe through uh, their territory, the Ammonites, they laughed. Like a modern equivalent would have been something like a Russian at the Ukrainian border laughing at caravans of Ukrainian refugees fleeing the country last year when the war started, right? That, or, you know, it'd be something like that. And so because of this attitude, because of their attitude, God is not having it. So now the therefore, right? Verse four. So because you did all this, therefore, I am going to give you to the people of the east as a possession. So again, make no mistake, this is the sovereignty of God. He says, I am going to do this. Uh, This whole section is about the the judgment on the nations. And none of it are we given the impression that God is letting something happen. Right? In all of this, he's like, I'm going to send Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to send the Egyptians. I'm going to send, you know, whoever it is. He's not just guiding things. He is forcing things to happen. And he, who is he going to send? The people from the east. Now, scholars debate over what this is. The first option is this is the Babylonians because they're east of all of this stuff. The second option is that there were some kind of a desert people, that, like the Nabataean tribesmen, who actually did come through in a little bit later. That's why I think it's that second one, these like um, desert people. They came in and they destroyed this whole area just a few years after this. And what God says is, I am going to give you to them. So you stood over my people and you laughed while they were being taken away by the Babylonians. And now it's going to happen to you as well. All right, there's this common trope, is that the right word, in like TV shows and stuff? Yeah. Where, like, you know, Bugs Bunny or whatever, where he's doing something and, you know, to the road run. I don't even remember. You know, he's doing something to one of the other characters and then the same thing happens. To, like he hits somebody with a pie and he's laughing, uh-huh, and then a pie hits him in the face. You know what I mean? Okay, so this is the really messed up, terrible version of that with a whole people group. God says, look, you guys did this to my people. And it's, you know, this is like that, but it's not funny. Now you're going to have to drink the same cup, right? You laugh while they were being taken into exile. So now I'm going to send people that are going to destroy your land and they're going to take you into exile. The people from the east are coming and then it's expanded. They will set up their encampments, pitch their tents among you. They will eat your fruit and drink your milk. So they're going to set up these encampments. That's very obvious um, reference to just siege warfare, right? They're going to set up camp outside your cities. They're going to eat your food. You're going to be so defeated and helpless, you're going to have to watch them eat your sandwich, 
Right? It's like the bully in the cafeteria who's so intimidating, he walks up and he takes some kid's Twinkie and just eats it right in front of him. And nobody does anything because, you know, he's one of those kids that was like 6'4", 300 pounds when he was 11 kind of a thing. So this is what's going to happen. They're going to show up, they're going to take your food, and there's nothing anybody can do. Uh, verse 5, I will make, uh, I don't know how to say this if I'm being honest, I will make Rabah a pasture for camels and Amon a resting place for sheep. So this was the capital city, and it was located on a river. And this river was this, the key to the prosperity of the people. And so today, this city is actually Amman with an A-N, A-M-M-A-N. It's the capital of Jordan. So it's in the same place, right? It's the capital of Jordan. And he says, look, I'm going to make it a pasture. So I'm going to destroy your city so it's going to look like an open field. All this stuff that you've built, all the energy you've put to making walls and buildings and aqueducts and all this different stuff, it's going to be leveled so greatly that it's just going to look like a field after a little while. Um, it's like those post-apocalyptic TV shows. Have you guys ever seen one of these where they're walking through New York and everything is overgrown and it looks like a forest and not really like a city? That's kind of what God is saying here. That's going to be the level of destruction. And the purpose of this is then you will know that I am the Lord. That's the point. That's the formula we see, I think it's 70-something times in the book of Ezekiel. I'm going to do this, and then the people will know. Then you guys, you will know that I am the Lord. Normally, though, almost every time it's said, it's said to the people of God. I'm going to do this to the people of Jerusalem, and then they will know that I am the Lord. I'm going to do this to the exiles. They will know that I am the Lord. But here it's not. Here it's the Ammonites. I'm going to do this to them, and then they will know. They laugh because they thought I was defeated by Nebuchadnezzar, but when they fall, they're going to realize that I am God. And so now, um, another. these guys were so bad, they get two cycles of the because therefore. They're the only one of the cities in our, or the nations in our verses today that get two of these. So for this is what the Lord God says, because, so here goes the cycle, because you clapped your hands, stamped your feet, and rejoiced over the land of Israel with wholehearted contempt. So you clapped and stomped, they were celebrating, rejoicing, uh, as the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. That's sick. Okay, they weren't just relieved because now their enemy, you know, wasn't there anymore, but they were actually happy. Um, you know, imagine for a sec that you had a, I don't know, a neighbor or somebody, let's say a neighbor, who wasn't a great dude and you guys kind of bickered and didn't really get along. And then one day you walk in and the coroner is wheeling out your neighbor. Okay, now, you didn't get along with the guy. Okay, great. But if you start dancing in the hallway, people are going to think you're sick and there's something wrong with you, even if you didn't like the guy, right? Even if you didn't get along. So that's what these people did. They didn't just, okay, now we, you know. I mean, they were celebrating. They were dancing and clapping when the city of Jerusalem fell. Therefore, verse 7, therefore I'm about to stretch out my hand against you and give you as plunder to the nations. So I'm going to give you his plunder, which was like the spoils of war. You specifically will be the plunder. They're going to come, and they're going to take you guys. They're going to take your city. They're going to take everything you own as plunder. I will cut you off from the peoples, eliminate you from the countries. I will destroy you. So I'm going to cut you off from the peoples. Um, I bet that the Ammonites took some sort of pride in their status in the ancient world. They were proud people. And God says this destruction is going to be so total that you're going to be wiped off the map and people aren't even really going to know who you were. I'm going to eliminate you. I'm going to destroy you. This is like, um, you know, you ever uh, reformatted a hard drive on your computer? You guys know about this? Okay. So the, when you do it in uh, OS X, there's a couple of options. I'm sure it is in Windows, but I don't use Windows. I'm not an idiot. No, I'm just kidding. 
Windows people. I'm just joshing. Uh, so when you reformat a hard drive, though, you want to wipe all the data off this hard drive. And you open it up, and there's a few options. There's like the quick, hey, we're going to kind of delete it, but not really. That's the first option, and it goes really fast. And then the third option, you know, like the all the way, there's a few levels, and it goes all the way to like the NSA can't get anything off of whatever was on this hard drive. Um, if the FBI is trying to find you, you know, God says that's the option we're going for here. I'm going to wipe this hard drive so clean that even the FBI won't know what's happening, right? By the way, complete sidebar, I'm pretty sure my dad, he's got to be on some kind of an FBI watch list because when we were teenagers, we downloaded the anarchist cookbook so we could make smoke bombs and you guys know about that. Anyway, so sorry, dad, if you listen to the podcast. All right, here we go. <laughs> they show up at your house. Again, so I'm going to do this. Therefore, I'm going to do this and you will know that I am the Lord. That's the formula again. He wants them to absolutely to know that my name, your name will be forgotten, you will be wiped out, and my name will be made great. All right, so that's our first group. Let's move south one country now to Moab. This is verse 8. This is what the Lord God says, because Moab and Seir. So, um, again, this is moving just a little bit south. The history of Moab is really messed up. So these are descendants of Lot um, and his daughters, specifically. Now, the story, if you know this story, Lot is running away from Sodom and Gomorrah as it's destroyed. His wife turns into a pillar of salt. And uh, they're up in the mountains. And I don't know what they thought. They must have thought the whole world has ended. And so Lot's daughters get this brilliant idea. Well, we got to repopulate the earth. It's just us and dad. And maybe you can see where this is going. You can't get mad. This is in the Bible. And so they say, well, we'll put a few smearing off ices into dad, you know get them all good and liquored up, and then we'll take turns sleeping with them. And then we'll get pregnant, and we'll have some kids, and we can repopulate the earth. And that's what they did, and they had some kids. And then they walked out, and they realized, oh, there's still a lot of people around, you know. And then, boy, that was a mistake. Well, anyway, one of those kids uh, was the, de the descendant, um, was the uh, ancestors of the Moabites. That's where the Moabites come from. By the time, so there are um, good and bad things about the Moabites in history, right? Like they... Um, they introduced Baal worship to the Israelites, we're told, in the book of Numbers. They're the ones that told all the, the people of God about Baal. But at the same time, like one of the heroes of the Bible was a Moabite, Jesus's ancestor, Ruth. She was a Moabite, right? So the whole story of Ruth, she's the hero of the story and she's part of the lineage of Christ himself. She was a Moabite. But then, uh, you know, by the time of um, the war with Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and all that stuff, the Moabites were working for Nebuchadnezzar. They were mercenaries. So they were part of the people who destroyed Jerusalem. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Amos, they all have our oracles where they trash the Moabites. So what did they do? So it says, they said, look, the house of Judah is like all the other nations. So for basically 500 years at this point, the people of Israel were looking at the Moabites and going, hey, do you guys remember how your whole country started? Right, okay, so there was this cave, and there was this guy, and he had these daughters, and they just kept telling this story. And they kept looking down on an entire people group because of this. And uh, the people of God, they were very proud. We're the chosen people. You know, we're the ones that God chose. And you guys, you're not. And so you can imagine this went on for a long time. And then when the city of Jerusalem finally fell and the temple was destroyed, the people of Moabite, of, of um, the Moabites, the people of Moab, uh, they looked and they said, see, you're nothing special. You're just like all the other nations. You guys thought you were all that in a bag of chips. People still say that. You don't know. And uh, <laughs> just don't fact check that if people still say that. Um, 
you know, you guys thought you were great, and now look at you. Your city is rubble, ha ha, right? In essence, they're saying your God is nothing special. This whole time you've been telling me he was the true God, and he's not, right? You're just like all the other nations. That was their attitude. And God says, well, therefore, verse 9, I'm about to expose Moab's flank, beginning with its frontier cities, the splendor of the land, uh, three cities I'm not going to try to pronounce, and I will give it along with Ammon to the people of the east as its possession. So these three cities are going to get destroyed. And again, just like the Ammonites, I'm going to give you to the people of the east. And then it says here, so that Ammon, so you guys and Ammon, will uh, not be remembered among the nations. So this is, in this culture, being remembered was super important. Having a funeral rites and all this stuff and your, your legacy and your name living on was one of the main things that these people cared about. And God says, nobody's going to remember you. It's one of the worst curses you could give somebody in this culture. In verse 11, he says, uh, So I will execute judgments against Moab, and then they will know that I am the Lord. So I'm going to judge them. Again, it's the sovereignty of God. I'm going to judge them, and then just like the Ammonites, they are, they are going to know that I am the Lord. All right, so that's two of the three. Let's keep going. The next is Edom. Verse 12, this is what the Lord God says. Because Edom, so real quick, let me tell you about Edom. Geographically, it's the third in that row on our map. So it's at the bottom of the eastern part of uh, the land of Israel. Kind of, It's just to the east of the land of Israel. So they're southeast of the Dead Sea. These are descendants of Esau. So you guys know who Esau was? Uh, Jacob and Esau. They were the twins that were born. And God told their mother that the younger, you know, will, uh, the older will serve the younger. I'm going to choose for my special people and to continue the line where the Messiah will come from, I'm not going to choose Esau. I'm going to choose Jacob. And um, the Edomites come from Esau, the one that wasn't chosen. So these are the closest relatives to the people of Israel in this list of what we're about to read. They're basically like, you know, those weird cousins that you've blocked on Facebook because you can't look at it anymore. You know what I mean? These are those guys, right? So they're, they're cousins of the people of Israel. And um, one of the big... Uh, moments between the Edomites and the Israelites, as the Israelites were coming out of slavery, and they're passing through, you know, with Moses and the whole thing, let my people go, you know, the whole thing. So then they're, the, the sea splits, the whole thing, then they're moving through the desert, and they need to pass through the land of Edom, and the Edomites refuse to let them pass through. And because the Edomites refused to help these refugees, uh, there was this kind of violent feud between Edom and the people of God. So there were conflicts, with these two nations during the time of Saul, Solomon, uh, Jehoshaphat, great baby name. Anybody's looking for me? Uh, I always wanted to meet somebody named Jehoshaphat. That'd be probably a rough elementary school, though, for that kid, wouldn't it? Uh, anyway, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and Ahaz, right? So all of, like, for years, over and over again, the Edomites were the bad guys in the story of God. And so um, here we go, the because and then the therefore. So because, you know, they acted vengefully against the house of Israel— and incurred grievous guilt by taking revenge on them. So they acted in revenge. When Jerusalem fell, what Edom did was they took a bunch of the land as their own. So there was nobody to claim this land. Babylon had killed so many people. Edom expanded their borders into what used to be the borders of Judah. This would be like if we had an earthquake right now. Oh, man. I would, yeah, okay. I do that with the earthquakes and with Jesus coming back right now. 
uh, be so great if it happened. Anyway, not the earthquake, the Jesus coming back part. But imagine if there was an earthquake. Who was here in 89? Anybody remember 89? Yeah, a couple of you guys. Yeah, you remember. You remember when the marina basically fell over and all the, the land sunk? Now, imagine if you lived in the marina and you were in one of the houses that didn't fall over or catch on fire, right? And so your neighbor's house did, and your neighbor was hurt and was in the hospital. And so you wait until it gets dark. You go into his house and take his stereo. Right? That's basically what the people, uh, these people did. They waited until Jerusalem fell, and then they went next door and they took the stereo. And they did it because they hate their neighbor. <laughs> They've had years and years. Of, this is Hatfield and McCoys. You know what I mean? These guys do not like each other. And so they've heaped up guilt on themselves. So this coming judgment is going to be their own fault. Verse 13, therefore, this is what the Lord God says. I will stretch out my hand against Edom, cut off both people and animals from it. I will make it a wasteland. They will fall by the sword from Teman to um, Dedan. Dedan. So he says, I'm going to cut off these people. I'm going to kill the animals. Man, that's harsh. And I'm going to make their whole land a wasteland. Total, utter destruction. Verse 14, I will take my vengeance on Edom. So they took vengeance. Their motive, we're told in the verse, a couple verses ago, their motive was revenge. And God says, fine, you want to play the revenge game? You did this to my people. Well, now it's our turn. Right now it's my turn. So I will take my vengeance on Edom through my people Israel. They will deal with Edom according to my anger and wrath. So they will know my vengeance. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Right, so if I were to say to you, at some point, if I got mad at you, let's pretend. And unless we're driving in traffic, let's be honest, that's probably not going to happen. But if I got mad at you and I said, you're going to feel the wrath of my vengeance, most of you would do exactly what you just did. And you would kind of laugh and smirk at me because I'm not that intimidating of a fellow. If a crooked mobster or somebody said, you're going to feel my vengeance, you might go, uh, okay, that's a little scary. Um, if an army general or somebody with a lot of power said, you're going to feel my vengeance, the guy who controls the drones tells you you're going to feel my vengeance? Okay, it's time to get a little bit scared. If the God who created the entire universe says you're going to feel my vengeance, you better be shaking in your boots. God's not playing around when he says this stuff, and he doesn't say any of this stuff uh, willy-nilly. Right? Just, you know, he's not just making this up. He means it. And so this is the promise to the Edomites, that the utter destruction, and you're going to feel the vengeance of God. All right, now the fourth group, the Philistines. You guys know about the Philistines? Verse 15, this is what the Lord God says. Because the Philistines, that's where we'll stop. So the geography is now we've moved from the east part. We've moved all the way over to the west coast. And so the Philistines, uh, so this is the only one of these nations in this chapter, these immediate neighbors that's not right uh, on that eastern part, right? So we've moved across. The Philistines, their history is they migrated um, from the Greek coasts in the Aegean Sea, and they were like a seafaring people. And they ended up on the coast of um, what's now Israel, you know. And at the time of the judges especially, these guys were the bad guys. Do you remember Samson, you know, and the whole cutting his hair, and then he knocks over there? You know, that whole thing was the Philistines. Then when we move forward to the time of David, the Philistines, at one point, they steal the Ark of the Covenant, um, and then one of the best stories in the whole Bible. Do you guys know about this? Okay, so the Philistines, they steal the Ark. This is in First Samuel. They steal the Ark of the Covenant. And then everybody in the Philistine village gets tumors. But I don't know why all the English translations say tumors. Because in Hebrew it says they all get hemorrhoids. <laughs> right? And they're like, dude, this Ark is messing us up. And they send the Ark back. <laughs> they're like, please, enough with the hemorrhoids. This is before inflatable 
two pillows. You know what I mean? Like, this was brutal for these guys. Anyway, so the Philistines, right? They're the bad guys. Saul was constantly fighting the Philistines. David was fighting the Philistines. Jonathan, who's the most famous Philistine? Goliath, right? Big, tall Goliath. Uh, he was a Philistine. These, so in a lot of that period, these were the bad guys. But they're still around years later. This is like 500 years later. So because the Philistines, they acted with vengeance again, and they took revenge with a deep contempt, destroying because of their perpetual hatred. So the action is that they destroyed. Most likely, these guys also swooped in from the other side um, and took stuff after the fall of Jerusalem. So they sort of expanded from the west while these other countries expanded from the east. And we're told they have three motives. So first is vengeance. So they're continuing with that cycle of vengeance. You killed Goliath, so then we killed your guy, and then you killed one of our guys, and then 500 years go by, and it's the Hatfield McCoys and the revenge. The second motive is contempt. Um, in the ESV, a different translation, it says with malice of soul. This is, like the, this is about the depth of hatred. Like, I hate you all the way down in my guts. And that's the third motive is hatred, right? Never In the ESV, it says never-ending enmity. Right? This is about the time frame of the hatred. So I hate you all the way down in my soul, and I've hated you for a long time. Right? This is like the Giants and the Dodgers level of hate here. You know what I mean? We do not like these guys. I still want revenge for the playoffs in 2020. The check swing heard around the world. No, nobody knows this. Okay, anyway, um, I hate them deep in my soul, and I've hated them since I was in diapers. Right? So this is it. All the way down here in my entire life. Therefore, I don't really hate the Dodgers. Sean Garman's, I mean, I do hate the Dodgers. I don't hate Dodger fans. Sean Garman's a Dodger fan, and I like to, I like to, you know, text him every time we win, which has been a while, so I haven't talked to Sean in years. All right, here we go. Um, <laughs> uh, verse 16, therefore, this is what the Lord God says. So that because you did this, therefore, this is what God's going to do. I'm going to stretch out my hand against the Philistines. So again, I'm going to act in my sovereign power cutting off the Cherethites from, and wiping out what remains of the coastal peoples. Okay, so here's the thing. God says, I'm going to completely destroy the Cherethites. Folks aren't really sure what that word means. It's probably a word for Philistines or like a tribe within the Philistines, but God wiped them out so completely that we don't even know what this word means, right? So he, this definitely came true. Um, so how is he going to wipe them out? Verse 17, I will execute severe vengeance against them, with furious rebukes. So again, you want to play the vengeance game with God and his people? Okay, you go first. Now it's my turn. This is what the God of the universe says. And then they will know that I am the Lord when I take vengeance on them. So that's the formula again. The whole point here is that God's name will be made known. I'm going to wipe out these people. I'm going to do all this stuff so that God's name will be made known. And in this context, when Jerusalem fell, the surrounding nations, they looked at God and they laughed. They said, this is the guy you guys keep telling us is the creator. This is the one and true God. Doesn't look like it. They just destroyed his temple. He's not the creator. He's not the only God. I'm going to stick with Marduk. I'm going to stick with Baal, Asherah, whatever, one of these gods. And then God comes along and he says, no, I'm going to make my name known. I'm going to wipe out all these different people. Now, that's our passage for today. The picture that's painted in this passage stinks. It's not great. I don't like, not that I don't like the chapter. I don't like the picture that this chapter paints. Because here's what the picture is. The, the nations are at odds with God. These nations that are surrounding Israel, these are Israel's neighbors. These are Israel's papst blue ribbon people, right? And what's their relationship with God? They're at odds with him. They make fun of him. They mock him. They mock his people. 
They seek revenge on him and his people. They take land. So God, what does he do? He judges them. The question, though, as we look at this specific chapter in the middle of the book of Ezekiel here, we have to ask, how does this chapter fit into the whole story of the Bible? How did we get here where the nations are at this kind of animosity with their creator? It starts with the fall, right? We weren't created to be like this with this, uh, you know, headbutting with God. We were created to be in a perfect relationship. But Adam and Eve, they ate the apricot, they broke it all, they did this to us. And the very first thing we see after the Adam and Eve story is we see this kind of um, uh, brokenness between God and people. And we see the nations not following the ways of God. So you have Cain and Abel, right? So Cain kills his brother Abel. But then you know the next guy in the Bible, does anybody know who it is after Cain and Abel? It's a guy named Lamech. You guys know him? And what he did was he basically wrote a song, and his song goes like this. La-dee-dee, la-dee-da, you know, Cain was bad, I'm worse, the end. That's the whole song, right? I'm paraphrasing. Right? He's bragging. I'm, I'm worse of a person than Cain, right? And then it gets so bad, the nations become so sinful that back to our hard drive analogy, God goes, I need to reformat and then reinstall the operating system, right? I need to wipe everything and then start from scratch. This is how bad it gets. So this is what he does. He sends a flood and destroys not just a couple of the nations, all of them. He wipes out people, and he starts over. And then what happens right after the flood? Does anybody know the next story in Genesis? What's the next part? It goes the flood and then Tower of Babel. You guys know the story of the Tower of Babel? The people all get together, and they say, we're pretty great, and God is right there in the sky or something. We're going to build a tower that's going to get us to the heavens that's going to show our glory. That's what, that's what it was really about. We're going to show our glory, and we're going to become like the gods. We can reach God, this idolatry and this arrogance. So God comes down, and he confuses the speech of the people because, they're, because of their idolatry. And then what do they do? They spread out, and they're all speaking different languages, and they can't get along. And then sin, after Babel, continued to spread throughout the nations. You have Sodom and Gomorrah. You have Egypt. And what God does is he calls his own people and he says, look, I need you to live in this land of promise, the land of flowing with milk and honey, uh, and then I need you to share the gospel with the people around you. I need you to tell them about me. But that's not really what they do. And by the time we pull up here into Ezekiel chapter 25, we see that it's gotten so bad that God has to judge the nations. So we're where does the story pick up then? Well, if we fast forward into the New Testament, let's ask this question for a second. Who killed Jesus? All right, let's think about this. It's kind of interesting when you think about it. The way that it's framed in the Gospels and the way it happened historically is, well, first, you can blame the people of God themselves. They made this sham trial. They beat him up. They uh, handed him over, the whole thing. This is their fault. This is the people of God. They killed Jesus. But then who killed Jesus? The nations, right? The Gentiles. The, they're the ones, the, the cross, Jewish people didn't use crucifixion. This was a Roman thing. This was a Persian thing, right? You see, the, the cross was what the nations did to God. But what's interesting is the cross is the reversal of what happens in this whole section, Ezekiel 25 through 32. Here, in our part of Ezekiel, in this chapter, in these chapters, the wrath of God is poured out on the nations. God takes lives. 
But there at the cross, the nations are the instrument of wrath, and they take God's life. The story is switched. So instead of God being the one pouring out the judgment, the judgment is poured out on God himself. And why, why did Jesus take it? Why did he do it? Why did he let the nations murder him instead of the other way around, which is what we read here, pouring out the judgment? Because that was a price to bring the nations back to himself. And when the nations come back to him at the same time, they also naturally come back to each other. Right? Coming back to Jesus breaks down the walls that we've put up since the Tower of Babel. Right? And so unity within the people of God, especially, is a marker that gospel life is happening. People from all different spots uh, get together. Right? This is why, you guys know the Great Commission. This is what Jesus said, some of his last words to his disciples. Make disciples of, go therefore make disciples of who? All nations. Right? This is what he meant. He says, uh, what we see in, the, uh, in this command is to go, to get out and do stuff, but take this gospel to the nations, meaning all different kinds of people. And we see this really actually playing out in uh, Pentecost. You guys know about Pentecost? Um, the, the spirit is poured out and all these people were visiting Jerusalem and these are the people who get saved. I don't want to try to read all these names and everything, but look at this list. Like this is a, these people were from all over the Roman world in Acts chapter two, right? Um, these are the people who it says at the end, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. These are the people who get saved and they're part of the first thousand, couple of thousand people that make up the church. This is another map real quick. This is the map of where all those people are from. Some of those people are from Mesopotamia and Elam, way out there where Babylon was. Babylon who destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Some of those people were from up higher where it says media and part. That's closer to like the group that destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And then we have people from all over here in what's now Turkey, Egypt, who's, we're going to read all about the judgment on Egypt in coming weeks. And then all the way over here in Syria and northern Africa, Arabia out in the desert, up by the uh, Black Sea, right? These people came from all over the Roman world, and they got saved. What happens in the story of Pentecost is the story of Babel is reversed, right? So in the story of Babel, judgment happens, and the nations spread out. And then in the story of Pentecost, grace happens, and the nations come together. And so where we see that kind of stuff happening, those people coming together, that's where gospel life is happening. The whole book of Acts plays this out, right? You have Peter and Cornelius. Peter didn't like Gentiles, and he had to have all these visions. I'm not going to tell the whole story, but basically he meets this Roman centurion and brings him into the church. And then you have Paul's missionary journeys where he travels all over what's now Turkey and Greece and some other spots. He ends up in Rome. At the end of the book of Acts, maybe he even, uh, we'll talk about this if we ever do Acts, but he might even go to Spain. Um, and then the book of Romans even talks about this, where in Romans 11, it says that the people of God are like a vine, a tree or whatever, and the nations are these other people who are grafted into the tree. Have you ever done this with a tree or a plant? Okay, I've never grown anything or done anything, but I have YouTube, you know, and I looked it up. And they basically, you know, you cut off a piece and you stick it next to it and you tie it together. And the life, the exposed part of that root and everything, you know, it grows together and it becomes the same plant. Right? And that's the image that Paul uses. And so church history also plays this out, outside of the book of Acts. Christianity, one of the cool things about Christianity is it's really one of the only religions in the history of the world where the center of our religion has moved. 
right? Where did it start? We've talked about this before, but it started in the Middle East. And then you could kind of say the center of Christianity for a while was in Europe and the West. And where is it now, though? Where's the center of Christianity? You're right, Union Street. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right, where is it, though? Where is it? Shout it out. Africa? Okay, yeah, kind of. Asia? Josue's videos in South America, right? All, you know, really, there is no center anymore. Christianity has no center, right? And at least in Protestant world and evangelicalism, we don't have, there's no St. Peter's Cathedral. We don't have a center, right? There's no pope. There's not one guy who's in charge. We're spread out and we're all over and we're all different kinds of weirdos. India too, we forgot India. There's a ton of stuff happening in India, right? And then all of this, what happens is this reverse of the Tower of Babel, it leads to this. One of the coolest parts of the Bible in Revelation uh, 7, 9, and 10. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Right, so all these people come from all over in, in the new heavens and new earth. And you look out at this sea of people glorifying God and worshiping his name. And it's like, look at this group of weirdos. Right, these guys are from everywhere. There's this, there is no center. Right, these nations, they're not in conflict anymore. They're not under the judgment of God. They've received grace and they've come back together. All right, so how do we apply this then? Now, normally... In most churches in America, this is where the pastor rips into his congregation. And he goes like this. In our congregation, we look too much like each other. Right? We're all whatever, fill in the blank. Um, but let's be honest. Look around. Everybody look for a sec. Take a look around. I don't know. <laughs> right? <They're, laughs> we're a pretty good mixed up group of weirdos. I always say, I use that phrase, you know, and I always say this, that if we ever have a church picnic next week before, Sunday, uh, before the Sunday gathering, bring your burrito to the park, I want people at the park to look at us and say, maybe not out loud, but in their internal monologue, I want them to say, I wonder how those people know each other, right? Well, I'm sitting with you guys and, you know, I want people to think that. I think our church does a pretty good job of this, even though, I don't know, it's not like we don't put a lot of effort into it. It's just this is what San Francisco looks like. We've got people from, you know, Africa, South America. Like, we, we're from all over the world, right? San Francisco. Even one of us is from San Francisco, right? And um, we're from all over the world, and we get along pretty good. So that can't be our application, then, to do a better job at this in our church. So here's the application. Here's how we're going to apply this, then. Drive it home and make it a little more personal for each of us. In this text and the biblical kind of theological walkthrough we just did, the big focus is on race and ethnicity. People from the nations, all these different people groups, they're all going to come together and they're going to get along. And in the end times, that's what's going to happen and we're going to glorify the name of Jesus. I think uh, that we can take that same idea and spotlight it on other areas of our life as well that doesn't have to do with race and ethnicity. I don't think it's a big stretch to take this idea and say, not only should I be in community and be loving and serving people of a different race and ethnicity than I am, but also of fill in the blank, people with different kinds of jobs than I have, people with different income levels, personality types, family status. I, one thing I noticed when I was starting a church in the Bay Area, 
when we were first planting is when I left DPC, I had a bunch of time for like a year to visit other churches. And so that's what we did. I preached at a lot of other churches all over the Bay Area. And one thing I noticed is that churches in the Bay Area generally are mixed up pretty good like we are, right? People from all over, different races, different stuff, right? Um, but one thing I noticed was uh, everybody still looked the same. Every church had their own thing. So here's the church with the young professionals. Here's the church with the hipsters. Here's the church with the young families. And we're all, they're all from different racial groups, but they're all from the same sort of spot in life. There's one with older established Christians, uh, lower income people, a church filled with just immigrants, right? And so... Again, I think our church does a pretty good job at this. We have young professionals and tech folks. You know, we're not huge. We have blue-collar folks, whatever. But I want you to take this whole idea, and I want you to just think about your circle outside of our church. Think about your Pabst Blue Ribbon people. Everyone has this circle of people that we're closely connected to. This includes friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, whatever, right? There are people in our Pabst Blue Ribbon outreach pathways. And I'll bet that for most of us, Right, that circle looks a lot like we do in one way or another, right? So it's all students, because we were students, or it's all people like me and Melissa, you know, we spend a lot of time with other families, right? Because that's who, you know, we have young kids, or, you know, whatever it is. You can pick the thing. Here's the gospel challenge. This is where the gospel, is, the gospel story is so huge in forming us and making us into new kinds of people. Uh, you aren't like Jesus, Okay. He is God, and you certainly are not. He is perfect, and you're a sinner. He's gentle and loving, and you're angry and loud. He is self-giving, and you're self-centered. And what the gospel story says is that Jesus reached across all of those lines, and he grabbed you, and he said, this one's mine. And he came, and he saved you. He came over. He, he crossed the line. And now that we're with him, we're, we're part of the life of Christ. We're united to him. And part of that life means that we do the same thing. We look at our lives and go, what are the lines that I've drawn around me? And then we reach out of those lines and we take the gospel to the people around us. And so the final thing here, here's what I want you to do. Uh, we're, we're making these Pabst blue ribbon. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about with the Pabst stuff, you can ask me later, but <laughs> we're ma- it's like our outreach pathway. We're making little journals for everybody that we're going to give out at that all hands, everybody better show up meeting at the end of July. Um, and if, you know, you, you can't make it to the meeting, we'll have them here, though. Um, so you're going to get these journals. But just as I prep you for this, here's what I want you to do. Here, I'm giving homework, and this is how we're going to end. We're not going to end with, like, a cute little saying where I get real serious and I go, you guys, this is the, you know, we're not going to do that part. I'm just going to give you your homework, and then we're going to jump into confession and communion and everything. So here's your homework. Go home. Think about your Pabst Blue Ribbon Pathway people. Maybe I want you to take a piece of paper out. Write down some actual names. This can be on your notes file, too, in your, your Apple, whatever. Um, write down some names. And for each name, I want, you to write, I want you to actually write this out. Spend some time writing it out because it'll help your brain. Write, ask yourself these two questions. How is this person like me, and how are they not like me? And then just look at your list of people and pray for them and... Just sort of ask yourself the hard questions. How can I have more people on this list that aren't like me? What can I do practically to put myself in situations where I'm building real relationships with people who aren't exactly like me? And then, you know, pray for those people. And then in a couple of weeks when we do these Pabst Blue Ribbon journals, we're going to do some follow-up, and I'm going to ask you about these lists, okay? Cool? That's your homework.
All right, let's pray.